You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Let's go ahead and read Luke chapter 2, verse 8 through verse 10. I'll pray and then you can be seated. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 through verse 10. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah the Lord. I want to pray for us now. Let's also pray for those who've been impacted by uh, the storms and tornadoes from this past week. Father, we do um, come with gratitude in our hearts that as far as I know, everyone in this room um, is, uh, we have a roof over our heads uh, at our own homes. We have a roof over our heads here, uh, but we also grieve with those who have been impacted uh, by the tornado this week. Um, those uh, right here in our own region and beyond. I know that there are many right now who, who have experienced loss um, because of the literal storms that we have to experience in this life. And so I just want to pray right now for those, especially in Monette and Leechville, those close to us. I know we have people in our own church who have been impacted, who've had businesses uh, affected because of these storms, people who have uh, lost so much. There's been lives lost as a result of these. And so we just pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would comfort them in a special way, that you would make your presence known to them, that you would keep the enemy from planting seeds in their own heart, that, that you don't care or that you're not in control. We know neither one of those things are true. Um, we pray that you'll bring healing where there needs to be healing, restoration where there needs to be restoration. Uh, teach us how to grieve with those who grieve. Uh, show us every ways even we can meet needs of those around us. Um, And God, I pray right now as we approach this text, as we um, now come before you and just listen to what it is you have for us, that we would be a people who learn how to hold on to joy, to experience true and shakable joy, um, not just the literal storms, but even all the storms of life that are sure to come our way. And it's in Jesus' name I do pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to see a show of hands. How many of you have ever heard that happiness is not the same thing as joy? How many of you have heard that? Wow, look at all the hands in the room. Um, I, I grew up hearing the same thing, that that happiness is external, whereas joy is internal. I don't know if you've heard that before, um, that happiness depends on circumstances, whereas joy is a gift from God. I've heard that happiness is fleeting, but joy is everlasting. And though that sounds really good, Um, If you actually do a basic word study in the Bible, you will discover that's not true at all. Um, Actually, according to the Bible, happiness is joy, and joy is happiness. Um, You will find that to be glad or to be happy, the words that are used in the Bible is to be joyful, and to be joyful is to be glad or to be happy. And the reason I share that is because in study after study... The number of, uh, or the number of people that whenever they are asked, what is the, the, the one thing they really want in life? Um, overwhelmingly, the response that is given is people say, what I want more than anything else is to be happy. 
And great minds throughout history have actually argued this is what every single human being longs for. Uh, the great theologian uh, Augustine, or I guess Augustine if you're educated, uh, once said, every man whatsoever his condition desires to be happy. Uh, Thomas Aquinas said, man is unable not to wish to be happy. I think of that famous quote, you've heard us read before from Blaise Pascal, who said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Happiness is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. So no matter who you are, where you come from, right? We all long for happiness. Uh, you want to be happy. I want to be happy. And yet, by and large, we are now living in a society that is unhappier than ever before. Um, you've all seen the statistics. Um, the number of Americans on antidepressants have climbed by 60% in the last 15 years. Uh, suicide rates have also increased in that same amount of time by 33%. And so though we show up this morning and we proclaim joy to the world with our lips, um, fewer and fewer people actually experience joy in their lives. And therefore, I think the question before us this morning is how do we get there? Like, how do we experience this? How can we increasingly become a happy people? I mean, not just when things are going well, but even whenever life is hard. In a world that is corrupted by selfish desires, in a world that is filled with things like death and loss and hardship and suffering and tornadoes, like how do we experience joy? And in order to answer that question, I want you to look back with me to Luke chapter 2 verse 10, where the angel again appears to the shepherds and says to them, look at this verse 10, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. That phrase, good news, is just one word in the Greek. It's the Greek word euangelion. Can you say that? Euangelion. Uh, well done for those of you that did. Um, and this is where we get our English word evangelism. It's also where we get the word gospel from. And um, when you think of the word gospel, we oftentimes think of it as a theological term or as a serious word. But in the first century, it wasn't that. In the first century, the word gospel was a happy word. For example, whenever a king was born or whenever a war was won, the empire would send out a preacher of the gospel to proclaim the good news about the birth of a king or about the defeat of an enemy. And that is exactly what happens right here. When the angel appears to the shepherds who delivers the good news, it is good news about the birth of a king. It is the good news about this long-awaited Messiah who has come to defeat the enemies that we could never defeat, the enemy of, of death, the enemies of Satan and sin and hell. This is the good news the angel says will bring, if you notice here in verse 10, not just joy, but great joy. Now, that word great can actually be translated as mega joy. And this is mega joy that is for all the people. And is that not what we need today? In a world where everything seems so uncertain, so unstable, where, where your things and people you love can be here one day and gone the next, like we need an unshakable joy that is rooted not in our circumstances, but in God himself. The one who has come not only to save us from our sins, but also to lead us into a new kingdom where one day this kingdom that we will live in, we will see that all sad things will come untrue. I was talking with a friend of mine, Murray. You guys might remember Murray he used to be in our church. And this time last year, he lost his dad to COVID. And we were talking this week and he was like, man, I've been doing pretty good. But with the holidays coming up, all of a sudden this grief that I thought was kind of gone has been magnified. 
And I texted him this passage from Isaiah 51, which is a picture of of our future. And here's what the prophet Isaiah says, talking about Jesus. He says, those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. And listen to this. This is This is what life is like in the kingdom of God. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness or happiness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Like if you have trusted in Jesus, that is your future. This is what life is like in the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom that is marked not by sorrow and tears, but by joy and happiness. And that is good, but however, as you all know, though the kingdom of God is now here, and we can experience this, um, the kingdom of God is not all the way here, if that makes sense. Like the kingdom is here. Jesus, when he came to this earth in Mark chapter 1, he proclaimed the time is near, the kingdom of God is now at hand. So the kingdom has been breaking in to this world, but it's not all the way here. And therefore, we have to live in this tension of Advent, where we hold together now light and darkness, right? Joy, but also grief. Fleming Rutledge is a theologian who's considered to be an expert on Advent. Here's what she says. In a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all of the time. It can be called the time between because the people of God live in the time between the first coming of Christ in the stable in Bethlehem and his second coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. Let me just stop right here and say this, by the way. We often think of God's judgment as a bad thing. If you're in Christ, you want the judgment of God. You want the justice of God. You want him to put all things to right. She goes on, Advent contains within itself the crucial balance of the now, the not yet that our faith requires. The disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and the pain that characterize life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. In that Advent tension, the people of God live their lives. What is Fleming Rutledge saying? She's saying that just like the people of Israel, remember in the Old Testament, whenever they were delivered out of slavery in Egypt and they were promised this land flowing with milk and honey, right? We see them delivered, but for years they're stuck in this wilderness, in this desert desert waiting for the promised land. That's how all of us now are living. We now, because of Jesus, the greater Moses, have been delivered from the slavery of sin and death and hell, but we haven't made it to the promised land yet. And what the scripture is trying to tell us is this, what Advent season is all about is that we are to be like the Israelites who though we now experience the wilderness, though we experience death and we experience grief and we experience hardship and loss, we still, as we wait for the promised land, are called right now to wait with joy. A joy that is not determined by the struggles of this kind of current day, but by our future destiny. By the reality that, again, in the words of Isaiah, there is coming a day where gladness and joy will overtake us and sorrow will flee away. This is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, listen to this, says, When people reject and persecute you for following me, rejoice and be happy. Why? Because your reward in heaven is great. In other words, like, think about the future. That's how you have joy. That's how you have happiness. Think about what's coming for you. And this is what we see that early Christian communities were marked by, despite the fact that they faced a heavy amount of persecution, they were communities that were known for joy. In Acts 13, 52, it says the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 8, verse 8, we see that the disciples are forced out of Jerusalem because of persecution. And it says it's, uh, that Philip went down to Samaria in Acts 8, and he proclaimed the gospel. And does anybody know what was the result of the city believing the gospel? There was, quote, Acts chapter 8, verse 8, much joy in that city. 
This is what I hope we will increasingly be known for as a church. I know a lot of people like to use adjectives to describe their church, a, miss, a missional church, a, a holy church, a welcoming church. Like, what about like just a happy church? Wouldn't that be awesome? Like, this is what I want us to be known for, and this is what God wants us to be known for, that we are a people who are happy, that we are a people that are joy-filled, that I have joy, you have joy, and that he wants us to take this, this joy forward to people in our city and beyond. And therefore, because of this, I think it begs a question for us today is if it's true that Jesus can bring to you and me right here and right now a mega joy, a great joy, then why do so many of us have so little joy? That's a good question, right? I mean, like my assumption is today that this is a a room full of people who would say, at least in their minds, I've trusted in Jesus like, I, I believe in his life, death, and resurrection, and yet I still have little to no joy. And so the question is, why? Like, why is it for so many of us that we still feel like we are going through life with our joy tank on E? And though there are maybe many reasons for why uh, this is, I'm going to give you a kind of a list real fast of why uh, some of the reasons why I think this may be. Um, number one, uh, a personality. Um, that's the reason some of you experience very little joy. Leading clinical psychologists now argue that 50% of our happiness is genetic, uh, meaning that a massive amount of happiness depends on how you're wired. Um, for me personally, I, I tend to focus more on the negative than the positive. I can be kind of a perfectionist. Um, and so like I'm the kind of person who... If I'm like on vacation and I'm looking out the window at this beautiful mountain, I'm going to be distracted by the smudge that's on the window. And it's like, I had to get rid of the smudge so I can focus on the mountain, right? And as you can imagine, that can rob you of some joy. For others, maybe you experience little to no joy because of trauma. Uh, you guys uh, have heard us talk about Jeff Schulte before. And he's had a big impact on our church. And I heard him say something recently um, that you actually cannot be anxious about the future. Did you know that? You can't be anxious about the future. You can only be anxious about the past repeating itself. So because of trauma, some of us have experienced what happens is we live with this constant fear or this threat coming over the horizon of the past repeating itself. I mean, I can think of trauma I've experienced in my past. And as a result of that, because uh, there were times in my life where I was like happy and joyful and then bam, out of nowhere, my dad gets a cancer diagnosis or whatever it may be. As a result for me now, rather than living up here, that seems too risky for me to have joy. So I just live with melancholy because then if trauma comes again, I don't fall as far. Does that make a sense? So trauma can cause us to go without joy at times. Our family history. You know, neuroscientists uh, tell us, this is, this is undisputed now, that, that every single child comes out of the womb looking for joy. And according to neuroscientists, what we now know is joy is found whenever you notice in someone else's eyes or their face that they're happy to be with you. Isn't that crazy? So a child from birth, even though it can't logically know what's doing this, it is looking into its mom's eyes or its dad's eyes or whoever's holding it and trying to figure out, are you happy to be with me? And if the answer to that is yes, it instills in a child a resilient joy that will carry them through adulthood. But if you had parents who weren't there, or maybe they were there, but they weren't really there, they weren't happy to see you, maybe they were anxious themselves or depressed or things are going on in their own life, and therefore as a result, when they look at you, you don't see that happiness, then you go into life with a depletion of joy. You don't have that. So our family history can impact this. On top of that, we have this real thing that we don't think about a lot called spiritual warfare, uh, meaning that we are constantly under the attack of the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So not only is the world coming at you, 
And the devil, who wants to, according to Jesus, kill, steal, and destroy your joy. But we also have this flesh, which means there are times where we walk in disobedience to God and we grieve the Holy Spirit, who, again, is the one who gives us the gift of joy. Add on top of that the 24-7 digital news cycle, which is this economic model built to profit off of your inbuilt fear of threats on the horizon. Add to that, we've been coming in and out of a pandemic. We have death, we have suffering, and all the other normal stressors of life. And now add on to that the holiday season, which we know is supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year. And yet for many, like my friend Murray, it's a time where we are reminded of what we've lost. We also experience pain and sorrow. And that's not an exhaustive list, but leave that on the screen. Here's just what I want you to see. The point I'm trying to make is this. Unless you're probably like a seven on the Enneagram or something like that, because of all of that, joy for many of us is going to feel like an uphill battle. Does that make sense? No? Does, does it make sense? Okay, it does make sense. For three of you, great. For the others, let's talk about it after the message. I'll try to do a better job of explaining it. Um, joy is going to, for many of us, feel like an uphill battle, which is why, please hear me, You, if you want joy, you're going to have to make a conscious, deliberate act of the will to choose joy. Henry Nowen says it like this, joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. Here's Richard Foster. The decision to set the mind on the higher things of life is an act of the will. This is why celebration or joy is a discipline. It is not something that falls on our heads. It is the result of a consciously chosen way of thinking and living. Or look at this. This is from Rick Howe. In the Bible, joy is dressed as a command. Look at all the different commands he just even lists there. The command to rejoice or be glad looks like any other command in the Bible that we are expected to obey. This means that despite being told we have no control over our emotions, the pursuit of joy is actually, a listen to this, a moral obligation that should be taken seriously. This is why the great Martin Luther once said, a Christian should be joyful if not the devil is tempting him. Put that on your t-shirt or on your wall or coffee mug. My point is just this. No matter who you are or where you come from or what is happening in your life, you can choose joy. You can choose joy. The question is how? How? How do we live, in the words of Rick Howe, right? How do we fulfill this moral obligation to be happy as even Jesus was happy? Like, how do we do this? Like, in a fallen world with hardship and loss and trauma and all this different kind of stuff, relational breakdown. How do we go from living in fear like the shepherds were to living with a mega joy? And the short answer to that is by practicing the way of Jesus. But a much more detailed answer is found in Philippians chapter four. So turn with me here. Philippians chapter four. We'll end here today. Philippians chapter four. By the way, if, if, if your spouse doesn't have a physical copy of the Bible, a great Christmas present this year would be to give them a physical copy of the Bible. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 through verse 8. The Apostle Paul here is writing from prison. He has lost it all. He has suffered more than any of us have suffered and probably will suffer. And here's what he says. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. So notice, this is a command. 
Okay, rejoice in the Lord always, not just whenever all is right in the world. Guys, listen, if you wait to rejoice when everything is right in the world, you'll never find joy. You'll never rejoice. You'll be waiting for a very long time. Rejoice in the Lord, not just when everything's going well. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. So Paul's just driving home this point. We're to be joyful all the time. Okay, how do we do this? Verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. By the way, that's what Christmas is all about. Jesus is Emmanuel. That means God is with us. The Lord is now near. Verse 6. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So there are many different um, applications we can pull from this text, but what many scholars agree to is that what Paul is doing here is he's given us a tutorial for how to experience joy. He is trying to give us an on-the-ground practical guide to how we can live with an unshakable joy. And if we're going to do this, he says there's four things we have to do. We'll go through these very quickly. One, if you want to experience joy, Paul says you have to draw near to God in prayer. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything but in every situation by prayer and petition. Paul says, because God is now near, guys, listen, rather than trying to manage your life in your own power, take your anxieties and your fears to God, who, by the way, is the source of joy and happiness. I think of the words of David in Psalm 1611. I told my wife this past week, I want this verse on my tombstone. So in case she forgets, you guys now hear it too. Psalm 1611, David says, In your presence is a fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. C.S. Lewis, picking up on this idea, says the following, If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. With that in mind, if you want joy, it doesn't come from getting God's presence. It comes from getting his presence. He is a source of joy. And so Paul says, draw near to him. And the way that we do this is through prayer. Secondly, if you want to experience joy, he says you're to give thanks. In verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So if you want to grow in joy, you have to practice thanksgiving. You have to practice gratitude. And, and from the best I can tell, this involves two things. This involves a ritual and it involves a redirection. What I mean by ritual is that you have to, if you want to grow in joy, set aside time every day where you give God thanks, where you practice gratitude. For me, this is at night when I'm falling asleep. I know others that do this in the morning. It doesn't really matter when you do it. The point is, if you want to grow in joy, you need to make gratitude a daily habit. So this is a ritual, but there's also a uh, redirection, meaning if you want to grow in joy, you're going to oftentimes have to redirect your mind. 
You're going to have to make a decision to focus not on how hard or bad or unfair your life is, which, by the way, is very easy for me to do with my personality. But you need to make a decision, right? Rather than focusing on all that is wrong, focus on all that is right. Rather than focusing on everything you don't have, focus on what you do have. And so in a very like real way for me, like I tend to have seasonal depression. I feel that. I don't know if anybody else does when it gets dark and cold and you can't get out. And so I can wake up some mornings and the first thing I can do is check the weather. And I'm like, are you kidding me? It's cold. It's dark. It's rainy. The winds get up to 20 miles per hour. This is going to be a miserable day. But rather than doing that, what if instead we thought, you know what? Thank you, God, I have a roof over my head. Thank you, God, that I have a job, I'm healthy enough to work, and once again, I'm able to pay for the electrical bills this month, which keeps the heat on. Thank you, God, so much for that. And thank you that spring is coming, by the way, again. Like, like, what if we would do that? What if we would just direct our thoughts? Like, this is what it means to practice gratitude. Whenever we begin to run to the negative, we just say, wait, 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 let's focus on for a moment the positive. This is what it means to practice gratitude. And by the way, listen, if you have a hard time doing this because you're like, man, there is nothing positive happening in my life. Um, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Find past moments in your life that brought you a lot of joy that you can give thanks for and meditate on that. Um, this is something I learned from a neurotheologian, Jim Wilder. Like on my phone right now, if you were to pull it up, I have played a list of 25 to 30 of the best memories from my life that I will reflect on that bring me gratitude. And so, for example, I have on there like my first date with Megan when we went to a Blindside concert at the Hard Rock Cafe in Memphis, right? Um, the birth of my children are a memory on there. When I was 12 years old, I pitched a no-hitter, and my friends came and dogpiled me. That was a great memory that brought me a lot of joy. I think about being at Bush Stadium and watching Mark McGuire, Ty Babers record. I'm out right there by my dad, my brother, and we're all high-fiving, and the crowd's going crazy. That brought me a lot of joy. Today, I was at the railroad tracks, which is... Uh, right behind our house, and I sit in my truck. It's often where I'll have silent and solitude. And and I'm sitting there, and a train comes barreling by when I'm right in the middle of like trying to like really focus on the Lord. And in that moment, rather than being like, stupid train, I made a decision in that moment to be like, man, thank you, God, for Paragold. Because when I think of trains, I think of Paragold. And then I also thought about my brother, I think's in here. Is Grant in here? Yeah, there he is. I also thought about Grant today. This came out of nowhere. Uh, Paragold used to have its own talk show. Did y'all know that? Uh, back in the 90s. Anybody know that? And there was a theme song for it. And me and my brother were on the music video for the theme song. And so I started thinking about, you know, when it says fishing down the eight mile creek, I thought about whenever like they had that video of you and me walking down the railroad tracks with our fishing pole. And I started, it just brought me joy. And I just took a moment to, to feel that, to experience that, to kind of tap that in. And then listen, to give thanks to God, who is the giver of all good gifts and all good memories and who's the one who gives us the ability to enjoy those things. Like, that's so important that we do this. Um, I was talking with Haley Deck this past week. Y'all know Haley Deck, right, who lost both of her kids in a car wreck. And I said, have you found it true that you can be happy in sorrow, that you can have joy in the midst of deep grief? And she said, yeah, absolutely. And then she said this, and I actually just copied it, and I'm just going to read what she sent me. I've been discovering that my emotions are an indicator of my alignment with God. This is to say that I'm learning to recognize how I am feeling and understand it as an indicator of my alignment with what's true. That's a blockbuster statement, by the way. Don't have time to unpack it, but that's profound. Think about it as the gas light in a car. When the light comes on, we don't say, I don't want that there and cover it up and try to ignore it. We realize that it simply indicates that we need more gas and we go get more gas. Now listen to this. A lot of times, simply shifting my focus towards gratitude 
is a quick way to help me fill up. What is she saying? She's saying gratitude is the on-ramp to joy. When she makes a conscious decision to practice gratitude, her joy tank is filled up. That's what Paul is saying. Draw near in prayer. Give thanks. Third, I'll move much quicker on these last two. He says, you want to grow in joy? Pay attention to your thought life. Verse 8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is impure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, again, think about such things. Look at that list, by the way, in your Bible, and notice how the things that Paul tells us to think about stand in an absolute contrast to the news and social media that we put in front of our eyes all the time. Like, go watch the news, or better yet, don't go. Take my word for it. Like, if you watch the news or you get on Twitter or social media, do you know what's going to be on there? Everything that is untrue, wicked, impure, ugly, bad reputation, immoral, and blameworthy. Like, literally, the complete opposite of this list, which is why the more you're addicted to social media and the news, the less joy you're going to have. Why? Because, listen to this, this is very important. What you give your attention to will either make your life feel more like heaven or more like hell. Um, I, I know that I probably say this every week, but I really think I just read the best book I've ever read. It's called End of the Silent Land by Martin Laird, a professor from Villanova, and he says this, Our thoughts are like a pack of hyenas that can make our pain unbearable. He goes on to say, you know what makes life unbearable? It's not pain. It's your thoughts about the pain. That's what makes life unbearable. It's like a pack of hyenas that just tears away at your joy. Therefore, listen, as disciples of Jesus, think about what you think about. Like, we have to discipline our minds to focus on our good life in the kingdom of God with Jesus. Finally, if you want to grow in joy, plug into community. We don't see this in the English, but all of these commands in here are in the plural, meaning that if you want to grow your joy capacity, um, you need community. And you need community for two reasons. One, because as neuroscience points out, Joy comes when we see in someone else's eyes, I'm happy to be with you. You can't get that in isolation. You need a healthy community where people's eyes and their faces light up when you walk in the room and they let you know, I'm glad you're here. There are so many verses in the Bible about God's face shining on you. Why is that? Because that's how we get joy. We get to, as the church, as the body of Christ, be a reflection of the joy God has for us into the life of another when we step into community. So that's one reason we need community to build joy. Another reason is it's in community that we learn to serve. It's in community we learn to give ourselves away. And you say, well, how does that give joy? Because Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. The word he uses for blessed there is the Greek word makarios, which literally means happy. You want to be happy? He says the happiest people on the earth are not those who show up and say, what are you going to do for me? What are you going to do for me? How is everybody here going to serve me? But the happiest people on the planet are those who give themselves away for others. Community provides a place for you to do that. Now, before we end, my guess is if we would choose to do this, um, to draw close to God through prayers you see on the screen, give thanks to God, rather than thinking about all that we don't have, give thanks for what we do have, we'd pay attention to what we think about in the words of Paul, if we would learn to take every thought captive, if we'd plug into a healthy community, my guess is not overnight, but over time, you would become the kind of person like Paul who can say, I rejoice always and not be a hypocrite whenever you actually say it. Um, that doesn't mean other emotions won't be there. 
right? Sorrow will still be there. Hurt will still be there. Pain will still be there. Loneliness will still be there. But even in the midst of that, my guess is you'll learn how to live with joy. And I just want to be very clear with you. Like, this is not something I've arrived at. Like, almost everything I preach on every single week, there's, can't think of anything I've arrived at. But this one specifically is one I struggle with. Uh, this has not come natural to me because of my personality, because of trauma that I've experienced. Um, I can be the kind of person who is naturally bent towards anxiety. It's naturally bent towards depression. And so I just want to say this. I'm very much preaching this to myself as much as I'm preaching it to you. I was sharing with our staff this past week on Monday. Um, those that are close to me, you know that I tend to guard my time with Jesus in the mornings. Like I just don't want to be hijacked by anything. And so that's why a lot of times I'll say no to different breakfasts or whatever else. And I, I love to spend time with Jesus in scripture and in prayer. And I want you to hear what I told the staff. That's not because I'm so spiritual. It's just because I'm so desperate. It's like I know because of my personality that I need this. I know there are some people like Robert Piercy who wake up whistling a tune. And thank God for those people. But that's just not me. And therefore, I know if I'm going to have a fighting chance at joy and happiness in a world like this, I have to ground my mind and my body and my soul in the presence of God. And what I've discovered is that if I will do this, that the more I'm enjoying my union with Jesus, the more because of that, I begin to slowly but surely experience more hope and peace and love and joy. But still, this is a battle for me. Because I can have times in Scripture and with Jesus, and then all of a sudden I get that text message. Or I read that email. Or I have that conflict with my wife or that hard meeting at work or whatever it may be, and it can send me in back into uh, this kind of place of just feeling disappointed and frustrated and at times even feel despair. And so, like, please hear me today. Like, I'm not saying this is easy. In fact, I would say it's anything but that. Like, this is very difficult. Like, if we are going to become a people of joy, you know what we're going to need? A lot of two things. We're going to need a whole lot of grace, but we're also going to need a whole lot of grit. We're going to have to make a decision to do this. And, And I'll say this as well, and I'll be done. Something else this is going to require, if we're going to become people of joy, is we're going to have to change our perspective on suffering. We're going to change our perspective on suffering. Um, James says this, and this is just something that, that God has continued to bring forward to me ever since the pandemic. James, in James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, says the following, Consider it pure joy. Pure joy. Not diluted. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you what? Face trials of many kinds. Why in the world would you say something like that? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be what? What is suffering? What will it do for you? It can mature you and complete you to where you will not lack anything. Guys, if we're going to become a people of joy, we need to change our perspective on suffering. Um. I was reading an article that Tim Keller wrote this past week. He's basically like got terminal cancer. And he, he, there's a spot in there that I just, I, I had to read this. Um, I know I've read a lot of quotes today, but this one just really stuck with me. And I think we need to hear this. Um, Paul Brand, an orthopedic surgeon, spent the first part of his medical career in India and the last part of his career in the U.S. And here's what he said. In the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. 
patients live with a greater, a greater comfort level than any I'd previously treated, but they seem far less equipped to handle suffering and therefore, therefore far more traumatized by it. He said, America, more than really any other place I've experienced, they were traumatized by their suffering. Why? Because we just don't understand suffering. We don't, we don't, we don't have a redemptive view of the suffering. And so I just want to say this, like, if you expect life to go easy for you as a Christian, you're going to make life way harder on yourself. But if you will know that Jesus said, even as a Christian in this life, you're going to have trouble, if you expect life to be difficult, then actually life will become easier for you. And if you will then, whenever suffering comes, as James says, open yourself up to what God wants to do in the suffering. And by the way, what does God often want to do in suffering? What I've discovered, at least for me, and what I think James is saying is he wants to strip us of our unhealthy attachments. He wants to stay, stop clinging so tightly to these things. You think you need to be happy that in the end will not make you happy and put your hope and your trust in God who is the source of joy. And if we will do that, we will experience joy. I think of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians. He says, we are sorrowful. We are sorrowful, but we are always rejoicing. Paul knew how to acknowledge his pain. This is not a sermon on pretend like there's no pain. That's not helpful or necessary. Paul knew how to acknowledge his pain. He, he would admit when bad things were happening, but he also made a choice to trust Jesus. And as a result, what he discovered is that sorrow does not have to have the last word in your life. He discovered that, yes, grief can often be a healthy response in a fallen world, but at the end of the day, thanks to Jesus, listen, if you will trust in him, no matter how deep your sorrow is today, it does not have to drown out your joy. So this is not a, a happy, kind of clappy, artificial spirituality. Um, this is a call today, guys. What Advent's inviting us to do is to celebrate the first coming of Jesus, that he came and he embodied sorrow for us at the cross, and then he now has offered to us a death-defying joy through his resurrection. And we're to look back at that. But then we also, what Advent invites us to do is look forward in hope to the second coming of Jesus, where again, He's going to make all sad things come untrue. One day, what your destiny is, if you'll trust in Jesus, is joy is going to overtake you. Imagine that. You could not be joyful even if you didn't want to be. It's crazy. Like That is our future.